The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. I'm here with Tom Dobbins, who rounds up our guests for us each week. And each week, we talk about those things which hopefully, if we view them correctly and we view them properly, are topics that have an impact on whether our world is more just, whether it is more compassionate. And even though we talk about broad topics in society, we also say that kind of each of us as an individual has the opportunity to make our world better. And so we just say just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And imagine if the six or seven billion people in the world all did that, if they loved God, loved their neighbor, and loved themselves, I think we wouldn't have to talk about so many of these policy issues because the world would be more just and it would be more compassionate. But unfortunately, that's not the world we necessarily live in. It's not the world we live in at all. And so we do talk about these topics. And the topics that are <clears throat> of interest to us are some of the things that are on everybody's mind. But we do view them through our perspective of our Catholic values, our Catholic uh, thoughts, our Catholic being. And Tom and I, you know, we usually kind of mention this to our listeners to just reinforce the fact that, you know, those values in many ways are universal. We believe in the dignity of the human person. We believe made in God's image and likeness. We also believe in the importance of family the importance of participating in the civil community, the right to vote, participate there. We also believe in the rights of workers, that workers are critically important and their dignity, their working conditions, their wages are very, very important to a more just society. We believe in the question of solidarity and you know, that word became very, very popular when there was um, <clears throat> the workers' movement in Poland decades ago. And that is uh, that reminds us that despite the fact that everybody kind of lives in a country, although I kn- we know that they're the tragedy of so many displaced people, refugees these days, but that people live in nations and those nation states sometimes cause a lot of problems because we don't worry about what's going on in other places. So one of our values of solidarity says that we can't merely focus on our own country, our own nation, but we need to look broadly across the world that is there. We also kind of say that the world isn't fair and it's not equitable. It's not even. And from our Catholic perspective, those who are the poorest and the most vulnerable are those that have a particular attention, particular call on our resources. So our option for those who are poor and vulnerable is part of our beliefs, part of our values. And finally, and this kind of is a little bit of a more recent motif that begins to appear, oh, in the past few decades, in our Catholic perspective on the world, is that notion of the environment, ecological justice, the fact that we are stewards of creation, and that needs attention. 
So those are the kind of the beliefs and values that we bring to public policy issues, to societal problems. And we kind of hope our listeners get exposed to some of what's going on in the world and bring those values to bear on on that. So, hey, Tom, so let me ask you, um, what do you think has in the New York area has spring and summer come or what's your what's your kind of prognosis on that? Finally, I would say, yeah, uh, recently, I, 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 you know, it's kind of funny. I mean, I think we were kind of lingering in uh, we were kind of lingering in like a late winter <laughs> or, or, or or so it seemed for a while. Um, but I did notice that, uh, you know, I have I've switched over from kind of a heavier jacket to a spring jacket now. It's okay. still jacket weather, but, yeah. uh, you know, but I'm thinking that, yes, we're finally moving into toward those late spring summertime temperatures that are that everybody's been waiting for. So, yes, I think we finally. Are. All right. The other thing, the other thing I got to ask you, I just got to make sure that I know we're we're past Mother's Day, but are you in good standing with your mother? Did you yes. do by Mother's Day? I did, Muncie. In fact, I went to go get um, I we took her out to dinner. Uh, and she got flowers and then she asked for, when I asked her, I said, mom, what do you want? Cause you know, I mean, she's a woman of a certain age. What do you buy for her? You know what she said? Cash. <laughs> she, I like that. She's, she's she all three of us for cash. So she got <laughs> a lot of cash for Mother's Day. So, so what'd you do? So you went, so you went to McDonald's and you brought her, you brought her, you brought her a, a happy meal and you gave her cash and taking her out to dinner. No, actually, the reason she wants it is because of her makeup. Like whatever makeup she buys, my father complains how much it costs. So ah. she, wanted the, she wanted the cash. So ah. I asked her what her favorite makeup was. I don't know whether it was lipstick or whatever. And I said, okay. And I paid for that. And let me tell you, Monsignor, it's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, well, okay. But you've done good. So you still- I did good. good. I did. I'm good still in good stead. Yes, I am. Okay. Yes, I am. <laughs> That's good. So, uh, Tom, what do you say? Should we go to our first guest? Absolutely, Monsieur. <laughs> okay, I am delighted that our first guest is Wayne Ho, the president and the chief executive officer of the Chinese American Planning Council. And in terms of full disclosure, I do consider Wayne a friend. And I also, in terms of full disclosure, uh, I come across a lot of people who are, as I kind of say, in the do-gooder business and who work with nonprofit organizations Wayne is at the top of that list in being both dedicated and competent to uh, to that work. So I'm delighted that he took a time to his taking time out of his busy, busy schedule to be with us on Just Love. Wayne Ho, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for the invitation. It's really good to join everybody today. That is great. So, you know, why don't we begin? Why don't you tell us a little bit about so our, our listeners who maybe don't know um don't know you and they're just hearing a voice today. Why don't you give them a little bit of your background, how you kind of, you know, wound up today in this position? Uh, sure. So I always like to start off and tell folks that I am an immigrant. Uh, my brother and I were born in Singapore and we immigrated to California with our families at a very young age. And I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and as someone who was one of, at that time, only a few Asian Americans and kids of color in their public school, I experienced a lot of the challenges of not knowing English and having helping my parents to navigate the school system and other social systems. Uh, and I was fortunate to go to good public schools. I went to UC Berkeley for college. And you go to Berkeley and you either go 
all in on social activism or uh -huh. you run away. And I went all in. And after graduating, uh, came out to New York and fell in love with the city and been fortunate to work in the human services sector since then, um, mostly in the policy and advocacy realm. And for the last six and a half years, I've been running the Chinese American Planning Council, which is the nation's largest Asian American social services nonprofit. And through that work, I've been fortunate to meet people like you, Monsignor, where we not just provide services, but we're advocating for our own workers and our community members. Well, Wayne, thank you so much. And I'm delighted that you left the sunny skies of California and have come to the asphalt pavement of New York City and have made a contribution here. So delighted that you are now a full-fledged New Yorker. No, it, it's great. Uh, you know, in my younger days, I was taking advantage of all the nightlife in New York. Now with two young kids, uh, I'm staying home with the kids. Ah, how are you kids doing? The kids are great. Uh, we, I think we found out during the pandemic that kids are definitely more resilient than adults. <laughs> they bounce back <laughs> faster than we have. Uh, that's, you know, that's interesting because actually I was just reading this morning. I was looking at, at something and how kids in general um, really had a little bit of hard time, depending on their age, with some of the remote learning and some of the education thing that it wasn't wasn't an easy time for some of them. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a learning loss. We could tell with our younger, definitely missed out on some learning uh, mm -hmm. compared to his older sister. Uh, but they definitely, once school reopened, they bounce right back, see their friends, or back to the routine. That's great. That is great. So now, tell us a little bit about the Chinese American Planning Council. So the Chinese American Planning Council, CPC, was founded in 1965. Our founders were inspired by the civil rights movement, and when the National Immigration Reform Act was passed in 1965, they knew that there would be an influx of immigrants from Asia into New York City. So what started out as one after-school program and one senior program in Chinatown has now expanded to 35 locations in Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. We have over 50 programs in the areas of education and family support and community economic empowerment. We serve 80,000 New Yorkers per year of all ages and backgrounds. And uh, we are fortunate that we have longtime support from our founder to newer arrived immigrants and new community leaders uh, to make sure we reach our mission. Well, thank you. That I mean, it is, uh, as you said, pretty extensive. Um, so again, for our listeners who probably know this and Wayne knows this, one of the things that I have been doing for the past year or so is serving on the New York City Redistricting Commission. And, um, you know, probably people are very familiar with the fact when you do a national census that they reallocate seats in the House of Representatives and um, depending on the shifts in population, uh, sometimes states lose a seat or they gain a seat, et cetera, et cetera. But what sometimes people don't realize is the same thing happens on a local level, at a municipal level, because one of the basic kind of principles of our democracy is one person, one vote. So they want to make sure that if there are, you know, a number of districts, if there are 50 districts, in a particular jurisdiction, that they're pretty much of the same population that is in there. So as part of this commission, we had to learn a little bit about what happened in New York City 
between 2010 and 2020. And one of the things that I think came as a surprise when we looked at the data, and maybe it shouldn't have, but it was a, whoa, first of all, New York City didn't lose population. And in fact, New York City grew at a rate a little bit higher than the rest of the nation, that it was, um, you know, it was 7.9%, I can tell you that. And the nation grew at 7.4%. So it grew more. And, and again, there was a lot of talk about how New York City was losing population and all of those type of things, but the number didn't reflect that. Now, after the pandemic, you know, we'd have to do it again, but these are the best numbers we have at the moment. But the thing was, that was, I think, very surprising to us is that almost the majority of that growth came from the Asian community. And that was a little bit of, I think, a surprise to some of us who were on the, um, you know, on the commission when we, when we heard those numbers. So, Wayne, let me ask you this question. Were you surprised? Uh, no, I was not surprised by that. Uh, we know that Asian Americans are the fastest growing racial group in New York City. And every decade, the census has shown the significant growth, where even some decades, the numbers doubled. And it's important to keep in mind that the Asian American community is a very diverse community, over 40 ethnic groups, over 200 languages and dialects. And this is a community that also has the fastest rate of naturalization, the fastest rate of being registered voters. So we knew that this is a community that's driven not just by childbirth, but also by immigration. And that's where we've seen through redistricting that now we have an Asian plurality district in Brooklyn, and the majority of the candidates running in that district are Asian American. We know that uh, when I came to New York in 2004, New York City only had one elected representative who was of Asian descent, John Liu, who's now from the city council, who's now a senator. But we have a congresswoman with Congresswoman Grace Meng. We have 12 Asian American state senators and assembly members. We have six Asian American city council members. So we're starting to see more representation by the fastest growing group. There's about uh, Asian Americans are 18% of New York City, which means there's about 1.6 million Asian Americans living in New York City. That's twice the population of San Francisco, and that's more than residents in all of Rhode Island. So there's a lot of Asian Americans. So, Wayne, what I want to pursue with you, and and is a little bit of a, um, not a disappointment, just the facts of life, on the redistricting commission, given, it, given they kind of roll out the information on the census over time as they do more analysis, at least when we began to meet, they kind of considered all Asian as part of one community, not the 40 that that you said, because they just didn't weren't able to dig into the, the data. That was going to take a little bit more time. So again, I think for our listeners, the listeners are throughout the the country, um, tell us a little bit how those of us who are not Asian should think about the different communities. Are they like I don't want to go into 40 because I'll forget them all. But like I hear terms like South Asian. I hear terms like Pacific Island. I hear East Asian. Can you give me and our listeners a little bit of a of a non-Asian uh, kind of guidepost how we can think about it? 
Yeah, and I think that's why it's complicated because these terms always change. Mm -hmm. uh, the term Asian American did not come up until the 1960s. And a lot of that was inspired by the Black Power movement to say we need solidarity across diverse groups. And then in the 1990s, we started using the term AAPI for Asian American and Pacific Islander. And then now we've started using the term AANHPI for Native Hawaiian is now tied together with our community. So South Asians, we generally think of as seven countries. So bank, people coming from Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, and other countries. Southeast Asia would be um, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Hmong, Mien, Filipino. East Asian would be Korean, Japanese, Chinese. So it's a very diverse community that we're talking about with very different health needs, very different language and dialect needs, very different cultures. So that's why organizations like CPC become important because we have we understand the language, we understand the culture, we understand the immigration experiences of our community members. So given the world we live in, which everybody, not everybody, but many people want to be very, very sensitive in not offending people, whether it be intentional or unintentional, unintentional. And I'm not asking if you to betray any confidences, but do you get any like conversations about you shouldn't be called the Chinese planning council because you serve others? That question comes up all the time. So uh, our name is the Chinese American Planning Council, and we serve 80,000 New Yorkers, as I said. And two thirds of those are Asian American, mostly Chinese. The other third represents the diversity of New York. So black, brown, other immigrant and low income New Yorkers. So uh, that's something that we're trying to balance is how do we embrace our legacy and our base in the Chinese American community while recognizing we have to be more equitable and inclusive of the diverse community members we're serving and our leadership and our board has become more diverse. And my goal is making sure that anyone walking through our door, regardless of their racial ethnic background, feels welcome, feels included, and gets the same high quality of service. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I kind of consider this a little bit of a kind of a person on the streets uh, anecdotal stuff. I, you know, the church that I'm in now is kind of right in front of Grand Central Station. You walk out the front door of Grand Central Station, you walk down three blocks, four blocks, you are on the church. And one of the things I love to do is just stand on the, I'll call it the stoop of the church, but the front door of the church, because a lot of people walk, they go into Grand Central, it's on Park Avenue, and I love walking there. And it was interesting to me. And again, my perspective, like last spring, or maybe a year, year, years ago, as I'm standing there, I'm saying, wow, the number of Asian Americans walking by, I said, you know, wait a minute, I know the Lower East Side, I know Chinatown, I know Brooklyn, I know Flushing, but the number of Asian Americans walking by, I said, boy, this is amazing to me. And the day after that, I went to that presentation by the city planning council on the growth of the Asian population by the census. So I said to myself, well, you know, the statistics kind of show it and my own observation shows it that boy, this city has become much, much more diverse and much more um, filled with people of Asian descent. It, it's, it is to me, use a simple word, it's very noticeable. 
It's definitely noticeable. And as someone who grew up in California, where there has historically been a high Asian American population, um, I'm starting to see that here in New York City, too. And not just in what folks think of as mostly the Asian neighborhoods, where Jackson Heights is mostly South Asian and Flushing and Sunset Park and Chinatown are mostly Chinese, but we're seeing that there's fast-growing populations of Chinese in East Harlem. There's fast-growing populations of the Southeast Asians in the Bronx. And a lot of times people ask me, like, why do Asians settle in certain neighborhoods? And what I like to tell folks is, imagine if you came to this country and you don't speak English and you're looking for housing because you need to get better jobs or go to better schools, how would you navigate a city like New York? And this is the answer. You start off in Chinatown with the family associations and you, this happened in the 70s. Go on the subway to the purple line and get off at the end and there's good housing there. And that's how we start seeing Chinese in Flushing or jump on the yellow line and go to Brooklyn. The moment it goes above ground, get out. And that's how 8th Avenue and Sunset Park came around. And then in the 90s, early 2000s, it was jump on the green line. And before you cross the river into the Bronx, get off and there's housing there. And that's how Chinese start moving into East Harlem. But all those lines bring you back to Chinatown where they can do business, go to school, go bring their kids to daycare, go shopping, go to restaurants that all meet their language needs and their cultural needs in the Chinese community, for example. And we hear these stories with other immigrant communities, like we hear with Koreans, we hear with Vietnamese, we hear with Filipinos. Well, and again, my own observation, during the pandemic, we at Catholic Charities did a, a huge number of what we called pop-up pantries. So where we didn't have a site, we would roll up two trucks and we'd set up stands there where we would distribute uh, grocery packages of meals. And what was really fascinating to me is in the ones we did, one we did in East Harlem the number of Chinese who showed up there. And when we did one on the kind of upper, upper East side, again, a number of Chinese that showed up there. And, and again, you know, being an, an old time New Yorker, I used to say, wait a minute, we used to be able to figure this city out because this ethnic group was in East Harlem. This ethnic group was in Chinatown. This ethnic group was in Little Italy. But now, it's not quite as simple as it used to be 30, 40 years ago. And especially to your example about uh, food deliveries and food yeah. pantries and pop-up pantries, the Asian American community, a lot of their knowledge of navigating the city comes through word of mouth. So the moment a couple families hear, oh, there's a food pantry in East Harlem, or there's a food pantry in Park Slope, Brooklyn, or there's a food pantry out of the Trinity Church Wall Street, they tell their friends, they tell their networks, and that's where they go because there is high levels of food insecurity in the Asian American community. Uh, according to the city of New York itself, the Asian American community has the highest rate of poverty at over 26%. But these are things that are not talked about a lot. And that's why, though, through word of mouth, you start seeing Asian Americans learning to navigate the systems and how do they address their food needs or their school needs or other needs. So, you know. From your, your experience, is the growth of the Asian population um, being driven by any one of those subsectors or subgroups more than others? According to the census data, 
the Chinese American community continues to be the biggest portion of Asian Americans in New York. It's mm -hmm. about 40% of okay. all Asians in New York City are of Chinese descent. Mm -hmm. But the fastest growing by percentage is the Bangladeshi population. Mm -hmm. And they've been moving up quicker and quicker uh, too. And I think that's where, once again, is the challenge of a community as diverse as the Asian American community. There's those of us big by size, so Chinese, Koreans, right. uh, and then there's those that are quickly growing. And that's why when we talk to the city about making sure there's more translated materials and making sure that the Department of Health has public health information in other languages, and you have to reach out to ethnic press, it's different because there's different levels of English knowledge, there's different levels of readership, and there's different levels of engagement with the government. So I have a tremendous respect for the courage of the Bangladeshi community that has come to New York. Do you know why that is? No, I, I want to hear this. Well, you know which agency of New York City has such a very high proportion of people from Bangladesh. But please tell, please share. The Parking Violations Bureau. And so that they were willing to put their lives on the line by giving New Yorkers parking tickets, I think that just betrays an incredible, courageous immigrant community in New York. Yeah, and, and, and we see that with all immigrant groups, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, we talk about ethnic enclaves where they live, yeah. and then there's ethnic enterprise where they work. And that's right. where, once again, an immigrant community, you hear that hey, I'm getting hired in this position and you start seeing them go like like nurses, Filipino nurses. We see right. that or taxi drivers of certain yeah. ethnic backgrounds. But I, I, I did not know that's where the Bangladeshi community. Yeah, they and, and again, as you said, there was a actually I think there's a story probably about eight or 10 years ago uh, that I saw. But exactly what you said. Somebody got a job there. His cousin came over like you know, a couple months later, and after a while, that was the way where so many of the new immigrants from Bangladesh went. They they said, "Oh, that's where I can get a job." So it's uh, um, so anyway, it is interesting. So let me. Um, I want you to talk to me about a little bit of a stereotype and about how do we think about this. And I, I mean, you mentioned the high level of of poverty in the community. But again, I think if I would to kind of ask almost any, you know, just a random kind of conversation, people would say, oh, Asians, very well educated. They're very, they high educational level of that. Boy, the family puts them together. And, and I mean, we've just had a little bit of a, of kind of, we have a little bit of a controversy in New York about some of the more quote unquote elite schools and, and things like that. Wayne, can you give us some tips on how we should think about those issues? So one of the main stereotypes that the Asian American community faces is exactly what you said, Kevin, and we call it the model minority stereotype. And right. this is a stereotype that all Asians are successful. We all study hard. We go to the best schools. We all graduate the best colleges and get the best jobs. And some of the data that people say Open is, by somebody from UC Berkeley and Harvard. <laughs> we, we don't share that part. So um, I, I, I'm trying to live up to certain stereotypes. Okay. Uh, so the the key is, then is there are parts of the Asian American community who are doing well. 
educationally, economically. But we also know there are significant portions of the Asian American community who does not do well. Mm. So, for example, the Pacific Islander community, Samoans, Tongans, as well as the Filipino community actually have graduation rates from high school that are worse than black and brown counterparts. Uh, So what we do know is that these stereotypes are hurting the Asian American community. Uh, One, for example, is Asians are the fastest growing group in New York, as we've discussed. And however, the community gets less than 2% of our human services contract dollars. So that means there's not enough linguistically and culturally appropriate services for Asian ethnic groups in New York City. So what we need to think about is that, yes, there are those who do well in the Asian community, but then there are those who don't. And how do we make sure that there are opportunities for everyone to succeed and not just the Asian American community? Yeah. And um, what it seems to me is a little bit interesting to us in the New York area is almost all of the um, all of the other you know, major American groups up until now have been from kind of the Western Hemisphere, Western Europe. Um, well, this is the culture is significantly different than some of the others. What uh, are the challenges that, let's say, those of us who've been here for a while that we need to be doing in order to, you know, be better welcoming and better partners to be better neighbors to kind of this growing Asian community? What do we need to do? Yeah, I think uh, one of the other stereotypes that we have in the community is we call it the perpetual foreigner stereotype. And that's the belief that all Asians are foreign born, that we still have loyalty to our native countries. And it's important to remember that Asian Americans have been here in the United States since the early 1800s. And there are some Asian communities who've been here for five generations. And yes, there are some who've been here for five months. And this is why we need to make sure everything is welcoming. I think the first thing is uh, we do need to make sure that from public to private services have translations and interpretation, because regardless of whether you've been here for generations, you might not know English as well. Uh, It's also important to recognize that the Asian American community is diverse. So thank you, Kevin, for actually knowing about Bangladeshis and Chinese and Koreans. I actually Um, went to Bangladesh. Oh, did you? Yeah, I went. I went. um about within shortly, not immediately, but shortly after the collapse of the the building that killed 1,100 people, I met, I went with, uh, actually went with Stuart Applebaum and New York State Controller to meet with some of the workers there and the families that were there to kind of learn about working conditions there. So I I don't know a lot about Bangladesh, but I was at least there for a week or so. Yeah, well, I, I think you're uh, better than most New Yorkers if you've been to Bangladesh, because I'm sure most yeah. have not. But I think just the last thing uh, about knowing the community is that safety is of utmost importance right now for the community. Right. So during the pandemic, we know that there was a rise in anti-Asian hate, and that's from small things, uh, microaggressions and things being yeah. said, to the more unfortunate violent incidents that we saw. And we did have some of our community members we serve from uh, youth and high school students getting jumped to a senior getting hit in the face yeah. and just walking on the street. So uh, we know that right now that uh, putting aside these complicated conversations of the role of the police department, we do right. know that everyone from 
small businesses, to store owners, to faith organizations, to the police department, community organizations, that we all need to work together to make sure that there is a stronger feeling of not just safety, but also of belonging and inclusion in any neighborhood. Well, let me ask you one final question. You've been really generous with your your time and um, a little bit of my experience and then ask you about the uh, the Asian community. We go back we go back to the like the late 19th century or 20th century with the immigration from Western Europe, Irish, Italian, German, for the most part, when those immigrants came, they came for good. They weren't thinking about going back. When we had some of the Caribbean immigration from the Dominican Republic, Puerto Ricans are not immigrants because they're, but but when when Puerto Ricans came to New York, Dominican, other Caribbeans, they almost, you, you heard a mantra, I'm going back next year, but they stay. <laughs> um, so it was a very different, I think, you know, general experience than some of the early waves. How about the the Asian community? When they come, they thinking about going back or what's, What's your read of that? Yeah, I think it's changed for different communities over the times. So at the beginning, when it was mostly Chinese and Japanese and Filipinos coming to mostly the West Coast to work in the 1800s, they came to earn money and to send it back to the families and are planning to go back. And then they realized that there were more opportunities here in the United States than in their home countries. But unfortunately, due to laws like the Chinese Exclusion Act, there was not more immigration from China. There were already laws banning Asian women from coming into the country. So they stayed and worked. And we know then that also um, there's conflicts that cause immigration. So it's not just a pool factor of economic and educational opportunities in the U.S., but there's push factors like getting out of war-torn countries. Um, So, for example, the Vietnam War did lead to a lot of Southeast Asians in the 70s leaving uh, Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos as refugees and settling here in the United States. So now we know that there are still Asian Americans who want to come here. A lot of it is through family reunification, where they're getting back together family members who've been in the country for decades, as well as those who are coming here for economic opportunities because they're getting recruited by jobs or educational opportunities coming in as international students and deciding to stay. Uh, But I think more are now coming to stay and less are going back to their own countries. Wayne Ho, thank you. You've been so generous with your time and thanks for everything you're doing. And thanks for your work in advocacy and in the work of services you're doing. Thanks so much for being a guest uh, with, with us on Just Love. No, thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all you do. I think we're all in this work together. So we stand in solidarity with your leadership. Great. Wayne Ho, the head of the Chinese American Planning Council. Tom, I think we'll take a break. And we'll be back in just a few moments on Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We speak about those things that are important to our world, but we look at them through the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. We try to bring those values to bear so that we understand more what's going on, but how our values impact the way we think about what's going on and how we act to make that a better, better situation. So we uh, learned about the growing Asian uh, community in the New York metropolitan area and throughout the country, a very, very... um, you know, I think probably better to say the Asian communities, because some are from South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia. Obviously, India and China are the largest countries in the world. And right now, they're vying for who's going to be the most populous. I think China is at the moment, but relative, in relatively short period of time, that India will surpass China. China obviously has the, not obviously, but China has the second largest economy in the world. So, and to be very simple, they're pretty far away from the United States, whether it be the Pacific Ocean, which separates Western United States from Asia, or the East Coast, which is even further away. So a little bit different and different culture than we used to, but a growingly important part of our world and our kind of global perspective. You know, let's turn now to another topic, which is unfortunately pretty sad and pretty tragic. The issue that we've had a lot of mass shootings in the United States. So I am very, very pleased that Professor Robert Spitzer has agreed to join us on Just Love. He is a distinguished service professor emeritus of political science at the State University of New York in Cortland, and who has been studying, writing about uh, gun control and some of the issues of mass shooting. And I am, unfortunately, I don't want to say I'm pleased, but I am very, very um, honored to be able to speak with him about this very, very challenging and very difficult uh, topic. Professor Spitzer, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love This today. Yes, it's good to be with you and to speak with you. Good. So can you give our listeners who are hearing just a voice, give them a little bit of a sense of your background and how you got to be a distinguished service professor? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, I'm always happy to talk about myself at great length, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I... Would have, if you weren't, they would have taken I, tenure away from you. I, su- <laughs> I suppose that's right. Yes. Um, I began work at... Uh, the st- I was hired by the State, of, State University of New York at Cortland way back in 1979. 
and I always enjoyed teaching. It was a great place for me to be, and I kept an actively active uh, scholarly agenda, let's say. The main subject that I studied uh, at, for scholarly purposes was the American presidency, and I've written a great deal on that, including several books. But in the mid-1980s, a friend of mine asked me if I was interested in submitting a chapter for a book, an edited book he was putting together on various controversial social issues like abortion and uh, gay rights, civil rights, women's rights. And one of the chapter possibilities was gun policy. And I thought, well, you know, that's interesting. I've never studied gun policy, but here's my chance to do the kind of thing that academics have a chance to do, which is to sit down and study a subject and prepare and then write something about it. So I I wrote this chapter and I was really interested in what I had learned and I continued to study and write on the subject. And then several years later, I had kind of an aha moment where I realized that in my field of political science, there was no book on the politics of gun control. And obviously politics is everything in terms of understanding this issue. So I proceeded to write a book called The Politics of Gun Control, which will be out in its new ninth edition this fall, as a matter of fact. So it's been in print since 1995. And I've written a lot of other stuff. And the uh, State University of New York was kind enough to elevate me to the rank of distinguished service professor. And uh, it's a, it's a great honor. It's a title that is very important to me. And uh, even though I have recently retired from Cortland, I continue to be active in studying the gun issue and other things. Well, thank you so much. That was a really fine uh, uh, spelling out of, of your career. So let me cut to the chase. Um, what'd you learn? Well, <laughs> a lot, okay. uh, especially compared to what I didn't know before, although there's always more to learn. I've had the chance to examine the issue from a variety of perspectives, including various disciplines, because I'm a trained political scientist. And in the 1990s, I was virtually the only one studying this issue, even though it's a you know pretty explosive, controversial and important issue. Um But I've also examined it from the perspective of history, of law, of criminology, of uh, public health and medicine, because all of these other disciplines take an interest as well. But as Aristotle said, politics is the master discipline, and it really is the thing that ties all of this together. And uh, I have had the chance to view it from you know, a great many different angles. And these days I focus quite a bit on historical gun laws, first because it's interesting, and secondly because the Supreme Court suddenly decided last summer that judging the constitutionality of gun laws now was going to be based essentially entirely on whether there were similar old gun laws in our past. Yeah. So, you know, thank you for for kind of kind of spelling that out and knowing we were going to be speaking today um, I was listening to the radio and I won't mention the person, but it was an elected official, actually a member of the House of Representatives, who was talking about guns. And he's a person who is very, very uh, an advocate for stronger gun control legislation. But it was really intriguing to me that he, he kept quoting the Constitution without any 
without even mentioning the major Supreme Court decision, which opened the floodgates for not having a lot of laws or having to craft them in a very casual way. So it, I'm delighted that you're doing the scholarly work because there's so much out there, which I'm sorry, isn't too fact-based. I, I, I think that's right. Um, and, and I'll point specifically to one thing, which is that everybody repeats the phrase, the right to bear arms right. or the right to keep and bear arms. Right. People, and I will say members of the Supreme Court, have essentially lost sight of half of the sentence that makes up the Second Amendment. And uh, the, the, the full sentence says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And Chief Justice Warren Burger, uh, no liberal, uh, to be sure, uh, some decades ago uh, wrote, or perhaps it was in a speech, uh, saying that the best way to understand the Second Amendment is by beginning it with the word because, as in because a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. And in fact, that tells you the central fact about the amendment and the contradiction about where the law is today, which is that that Second Amendment was all about militia service by militia-eligible men serving in a government-organized and regulated militia. Back in the 18th century, if you were called up to serve in the militia to, you know, fight Native Americans or the Revolutionary War or the British or uh, whatever the military emergency might have been, you were required to obtain at your own expense a military-grade uh, long gun and the things you would need to go with that. And that's partly why the emphasis on uh, some of the wording in that sentence um, and that militia service was the backbone of the American military uh, uh, strength. And it was how we fought our early conflicts. Eventually, we abandoned the militia system because guess what? Militias are lousy on the battlefield. And George Washington's knew that and said so repeatedly in private correspondence with Congress. So did pretty much everybody who led American military forces in the revolution and the war of 1812. It's a nice idea that you can grab a gun, kiss the wife goodbye, run off, uh, defeat your foes, and then come back and, and re resume planting your fields. But being a, 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 an effective soldier is not uh, compatible with that kind of casual approach to military service. Um, Professor Spitzer, so, uh, yeah. uh, uh, distinguished service professor, Cortland University. Um, thank you for that. Uh, and I don't want to get into the whole controversy about the court and whatever, but ultimately, whatever Berger thought was overruled by what Scalia wrote. And he basically said, you don't have to read it that way. Am I, I'm, at least I'm correct in what was said in that Supreme Court decision. You are correct. And let me say that there were a handful of earlier Supreme Court decisions that did uphold the militia-based understanding of the amendment. Right. But then along comes 2008. The court is now populated by a majority of very conservative justices who uh, are bound and determined to embrace and advance this individualist idea. That is to say, 
that the Second Amendment is really about a personal or individual right of average people to have guns for self-defense in the home. And that, of course, changed everything. It was the first time the Supreme Court had ever ruled or any uh, federal court had ever ruled in that way on the amendment. And then, of course, last year, uh, when New York's uh, pistol permitting law was challenged in court, uh, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, in his majority opinion, takes that a step further and says, oh, by the way, the Second Amendment now includes a personal right to carry guns with you out in society for self-protection. And that is that decision has a fistful of problems, but they have embarked on this path, and it's clear that these conservative justices are are sticking to that, at least so for now. You, so you said that given the fact that some of the ways the the Supreme the justices are writing these days is that looking for things historically that kind of influence what we should be doing today. Now, whether that's right or wrong and different, we're not going to debate that. But for those who kind of say, hey, wait a minute, we need more, we need more control on guns. This is a little bit crazy, etc. What have you found historically that might justify greater control on guns because they are part of our history? Well, here's the interesting turn. And this, I will say, came as a great surprise to me. I've been studying old gun laws for about 10 years because thanks to the Internet and computerization, you can look at old uh, gun laws from hundreds of years ago that have all been digitized. And people keep adding to this corpus of laws. And what I discovered was that from the country's very earliest beginnings, literally 1619, for the next 300 years, Uh, The colonies, the states and localities enacted literally thousands of gun laws of every imaginable variety. Uh, There's there's virtually no uh, uh, idea related to gun control or gun safety that you can't find examples of 200, even 300 years ago in old laws. And so here's the thing. Gun ownership is as old as the country, but so are gun laws. And here's the further wrinkle. Gun rights and gun regulation were perfectly compatible in most of our history. It's only been in the last 30 years or so where these two things are now viewed as having kind of a seesaw relationship where a gain for one side is a loss for the other. That's not what our history says. The the default in American history is gun regulation, not no gun regulation. So, Professor Spitzer, I always like the good professors when kind of they always make the class a little interesting. So to wrap up now Mm. in your history and those thousands of laws that you discovered, what was the funniest or the most amusing one that you came across? I I will tell you one of my very favorites. It was from the 1650s. Okay. The 1600s. And it was a law that made it a crime to uh, uh, have or discharge firearms while you were drunk. But there were, but there were two exceptions, weddings and funerals. So if you were drunk at a wedding or a funeral, well, you could discharge your firearm, but no other time. And like, And again, it's the 1650s, right? right? Men and guns, guess what? And booze, not so good. Right. Hey, Professor Spitzer, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. 
with with us. I learned a whole lot. And and thanks for kind of taking up that opportunity in the 1980s. And today you made me and you made our listeners smarter. Thanks for being with us. Good to be with you. Professor Robert Spitzer, the Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus of Political Science at SUNY Cortland. Tom, we'll take a break and we'll be back in just a minute. Just Love, the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Thanks for being with us this week. Two interesting guests. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and more compassionate. Join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.